Thank you, my friend. Uh, can everyone hear me? Uh, I probably don't need these things. Uh, I used to be one of the one of those people that my wife would say, "Would you please please speak softly in the carport? Everybody in the neighborhood can hear you." Uh, it's a great honor to be here today. Uh, I I wonder why I'm here. Uh, and yet I know in my heart of hearts that there is some reason why I am here. Uh, just as there was some reason why Arbutus was here that day. I know from my own experience that I never know when my heart is going to be touched in a meaningful way and I never know by whom it's going to be touched. I will tell you that as I look out over this room, many of you have touched my heart and made important contributions to my recovery. Uh, I'll have to tell you about one resentment I'm going to get rid of right now. <laughs> and uh, that is a resentment toward Ruth Hooker. <laughs> Ruth Hooker is one of my longest and dearest friends in this program. But, uh, Ruth, I have held a resentment against you for years. We were once, once scheduled to appear as speakers on the same program, and she didn't show up. <laughs> and so I had to talk the whole time. <laughs> well, that resentment is now behind me, and I no longer have that burden. And what a joy to see you, Ruth, as it always is. Uh, There are, as I said, many of you who have played an important role in my recovery. Uh, some of the people who have played important roles in my recovery are not with us anymore. Uh, they are elsewhere experiencing even a fuller joy than we experience in this program. Uh, I want to mention a couple or three uh, of those people. Uh, one is my first and third sponsor, 
Al Paddock. Uh, he was my first and third sponsor because I got too smart for him and fired him and got me a smart sponsor. And that lasted only two weeks. <laughs> and uh, I went back and asked Al, would he be my sponsor again? And he said, I didn't know you ever fired me. <laughs> and, uh, another very special person that I want to mention is Barbara Miller. Many of you... Uh, knew her first as Barbara Knickerbocker. Uh, later, she went back to her maiden name, Barbara Miller, who played a very important role in my recovery. And I will tell in my story the role that she played. Uh, another is my dear friend, A.D. Reichel. Uh, who, uh, as uh, Bill Walker and I have done in recent years. Over the years, really talked a lot about what this recovery means, what life means and about our meager but obviously necessary place in the universe. Uh, that does not diminish anything that the rest of you have done. Those people, though, I owe a very special debt of gratitude to. Uh, when Angela called me, uh, I think I surprised her uh, when she said, uh, will you be our Heritage Day speaker? I said yes. And <laughs> there was kind of a silence on the end of the phone. I, I thought she expected me to argue with her. And I said, Angela, I was told when I came in that if ever I was asked to share my story of recovery, I was to say yes. And so the answer to you is yes. And uh, that will always be my answer as long as I have a brain. <laughs> now, I want to clear up a rumor that one of my good friends in this program is spreading. Uh, one of my best friends is just spreading this awful rumor that I am entering the first stages of dementia. <laughs> uh, and she arrived at that conclusion because at the close of meetings, when we stand and we uh, say the Lord's Prayer, uh, she says, I mutter. I mutter something that is unintelligible. Uh, 
Well, uh, I want to clear that up. Uh, I don't think I'm in the first stages of dementia. And the words are intelligible to people who speak Hebrew. Uh, I say a Hebrew prayer, an ancient Hebrew prayer, that is very, very meaningful to me and holds a very special place in my heart because it is an affirmation that the Lord is God and that God is one. Uh, it is a prayer that affirms monotheism. And many of you know my struggle with the concept of God. That was my longest struggle, probably, in this program. It is something that I no longer struggle about. I believe in God. And that uh, muttering that I do <laughs> is my affirmation of, of that. I will give you a very, very quick uh, transliteration of that prayer. It's not even the official transliteration that appears in the Hebrew prayer book that I own. But uh, it gets the message across in very simple language. It simply says, Hear, O ye people, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. His kingdom shall reign forever and ever. He was there before creation. He was there during creation. He is with us now. He will be with us in the world to come. And that is a God in whom I believe. From the top of my head to the tips of my toes, in every one of those statements, is very is my anchor. Okay, now let me get on. I usually introduce my story by saying that my story of recovery is not one of those horror stories. My story of recovery is really a story of joy. It's really a love story. Uh, it's a love story that uh, had a very brief period in it of darkness and fear and a shorter period even of despair. 
But otherwise, it is a story of joy. Uh, I frequently say to people that I have lived a charmed life. Uh, I have. I don't know why. I've just lived a charmed life. Good things have always happened to me. Not that some disturbing things have not happened, have, have happened. It's not that that's the case. Some disturbing, some hurtful, some frightful uh, things have happened in my life. I've had experienced great losses in my life. But the troublesome things are so outweighed by the joy and love in my life that they seem like a tiny little spot on that big space uh, of wall back there. I was uh, born uh, 72 revolutions around the sun soon ago into a loving family in a little border town uh, right on the border of Louisiana and Texas, southwest of Shreveport. I was born into a loving family. I was the fourth of five children. I was the only son, and therefore my sister said I was the spoiled one. <laughs> and I wouldn't argue with them. Uh, my mother always said I was always the mean one. Uh, said H. Grady could just get in more devilment than anybody I ever knew in my life. And I was mischievous. Uh, I have always been I was deeply loved by my parents. I was and am uh, deeply loved by my sisters, uh, although one of my sisters is now deceased. And I love them. Uh, me and my younger sisters fought like cats and dogs when we were, you know, kids. But boy, we'd go to bat for each other. Uh, I also had the wonderful, wonderful experience of having not only one loving family, but two. An aunt and uncle were uh, in my growing up years uh, really as much another set of parents as were my actual parents. Uh, that arrangement occurred because 
my mother had a major mental illness uh, all her adult life. Uh, she suffered from what was then called manic depressive illness, now called bipolar illness. Uh, and she had her first uh, officially identified episode when I was seven months old. And uh, she went into a deep depression and was hospitalized. And there was my father uh, with four children, <laughs> a seven-month-old, a two-year-old, uh, an eight-year-old, and a ten-year-old. And my mother was from a large extended family. She was one of ten. <coughs> and so her family rallied around to help my dad out. Uh, Aunt, Aunt Blanche and Uncle Joe uh, took the two older girls and uh, looked after them until Dad got home uh, from work in the evenings. And uh, the woman that I came to call Auntie, who was my marriage and my uncle Tommy was my mother's brother took the two-year-old sister and Aunt Marie and Uncle Ashley uh, took me. Well uh, after two weeks Aunt Marie brought me back home and said I can't take care of this baby. <laughs> well uh, Auntie uh, got word of that and so she said well I think I can take care of this baby if you think you can manage the toddler who was Carol and so they traded <laughs> and that was probably uh, much to my good fortune because then they became a part of my life and remained a very intimate part of my life or till their death. The, uh, among the many wonderful gifts that were given me were the love that my parents shared for each other. They were deeply in love with each other. And the love that my aunt and uncle shared for each other. They were deeply in love with each other. And I can think of no better model for adults to give the children in their lives than to love and honor partners. And folks, I got that message. Uh, at age 19, uh, I was in college, and a young woman caught my eye. 
that I set my cap for. And uh, she was uh, two years ahead of me in school and was a campus leader. I was a freshman when I first spotted her. And uh, I thought, now, how am I going to pull this one off? Well, finally, one day, I blocked her way (laughs) on a wooden bridge that we had to cross as we were going to class one, one way and the other. And I stopped her. And I said, hi, my name is Grady Hines. I know who you are, and I want you to know who I am. And uh, so that was the beginning of a 48-year love affair. Uh, The last time I talked, at uh, Heritage Day. I did th- I've done this once before, folks. Uh, I had the great privilege of introducing her to you. I wish I could do that today in person because you would love her. She was a tall, elegant, fun, articulate, loving, industrious person. I used to love to go places with her and walk into a room with her on my arm and watch other men turn and look. (laughs) And I'd think, she's mine. (laughs) And uh, I knew that. She was mine. She loved me as passionately and as deeply as I loved her. Uh, We dated for about a year. Uh, We had, as I think back on it, kind of a stormy courtship. We were always disagreeing about the most trivial things. And one of us would say, well, that's over with. But it wasn't. Uh, We had broken up at one point. And uh, I was working part-time for an automobile firm uh, in Shreveport where... Centenary College was located where we both attended. And uh, I would arrive at work at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and my supervisor, Maxine, would hand me a note and said, Dell called and wants you to give her a call. And so I would call. And she said, what did you call me for? I didn't. I didn't call. Well, that happened uh, three or four days in a row. So finally, uh, on the third or fourth day, I said to her, 
Maybe we'd better get together and see if we can figure out who's pulling this trick on us. And so we met, and we talked, and we figured out who did it. The woman, girl, never fessed up that it was she, but it was her. Signadel and I both knew it. And uh, so I was taking her back home, and it started raining. And... uh, we drove in her parents' driveway, and uh, I got out of the car and went around and opened the door for her and walked her up to the steps, and I said, hey, wait a minute. And she turned around, and she said, what? And I said, will you marry me? <laughs> and she said, Yes. and uh, we took a few minutes and we figured out a date six weeks hence and then we went in and uh, told her parents well they weren't very pleased (laughs) but uh, they came around and uh, we were married six weeks later uh, Dell had just graduated from college at that point. She had a job. I had a good job, a good part-time job. Matter of fact, I was making about as much money on my part-time job as she was making as a, you know, brand new uh, public school teacher. And so we we had a pretty uh, uh, cushy life. Uh, there we were. We waited for my 20th birthday for me to get married. Okay. So she would only be two years older than I rather than three. Uh, and uh, so we, we got married and started our good life together. Uh, I was a member of a partying fraternity. And uh, we were kind of known as the bad boys on campus. And uh, I think they still are bad boys on campus. Uh, We had something called the Old South Ball every year. And it was really more the Old South Brawl. Uh, And uh, there was lots of drinking around that event. Uh... And our ladies dressed up in, you know, the gowns with with skirts and so on and so forth. But uh, Signadell was a, she was a cool drinker. She, uh, she could hold her liquor. If she were here, she would tell you that when she graduated high school, in celebration, her father bought a bottle of champagne and they popped the champagne cork and drank the bottle of champagne, she, her dad, and mother. And 
she said that by the time she had the third glass, she knew that she liked the feeling that that gave her. And that she liked it so well that she made a vow to herself that she would never abuse alcohol to the extent that anyone would ever raise an eyebrow about her relationship to alcohol. And folks, I told you she was a competent woman. She pulled that off for 23 years. Well, really, 20, yeah, because I, that was two years before I met her. So it was really 25 years she pulled that off. And uh, somewhere, though, along about the 23rd year, in retrospect, I now see that that control began to erode. I didn't see it as it was happening. I see it in retrospect because it was so slow. It was so gradual. It was so imperceptible. She was never an acting out uh, drinker. Uh, never allowed boisterous drinker. Her life simply narrowed. And that was so gradual. Uh, we uh, had two children, a son and a daughter. Both beautiful children, bright, intelligent. Uh, I had a successful career. She had had a successful career until uh, our first child was born. And then she decided that her career would be motherhood. And she did that with the same competence and mastery that she did absolutely everything else. Uh, we entertained a lot. She did a great deal to promote my advancement in my field. Uh, she was very proud of my work. Along the way, uh, she uh, launched a second career, really built on her first. Uh, she uh, got special training in uh, the Damon and Delgado method of teaching aphasic children read. Uh, that was a very uh, particular method uh, developed by two 
Italian scientist and promulgated by the uh, uh, Perkins uh, Peabody College of Education at University of Tennessee. And it did wonders in teaching aphasic children to read. They don't call it aphasia uh, anymore. It falls under that broader rubric of HD, uh, ADHD, but uh, where people just literally don't, don't see letters right and therefore they have difficulty reading. And it was a wonderful method of teaching those children to read, but it was an expensive method of doing it. It's not something that could be adapted to school systems because it literally required one-on-one -on -one training. And so she became quite an expert uh, in that. Uh, well, in the 25th year of our marriage, I began to get uneasy because by then she had gotten out of every organization that she belonged to. She refused re-election to every board that she had been on. We first started uh, giving invitations and then that was soon followed by our refusing invitations and then she she was an exquisite exquisite cook just an artist in the kitchen and our meals got simpler And suddenly it dawned on me one day that I was doing all the grocery shopping. I was doing all the errands, like going to the cleaners and that kind of thing. The fall before she got sober, it was I who took the children uh, shopping for their school clothes. And at some level, I was deeply, deeply disturbed by that, but couldn't verbalize it. And there's a reason for that. <laughs> I was so much a part of the alcoholism in our family. I was so caught up in the denial that I could not see what was before my very eyes. And I could not see because I was so desperately afraid. You know, if you're afraid enough 
an automatic defense system takes over. You don't decide not to see. You just don't see. It's not there. What is there is not there. And then you back that up with rationalization. Well, it really has been a long day. She really is tired, you know, so on and so forth. And then that day came when I came home from university one day early. And I stepped in the den of our house. It was about about four o'clock. And I stepped in the den and the room was dark. And I could make out her form lying on the couch. And I thought she was ill. And I turned on the light and I called her. And she had trouble waking up. And when she awakened, I realized she was drunk. And that brought the greatest terror ever felt in my life. Some 20 years earlier, when I was in graduate school, I had been sitting in a class in psychopathology, and we had a special guest lecturer that day. This is 1961, folks, almost 50 years ago. And that special lecturer was the then head of the Division of Alcoholism in the State Department of Hospitals. And these words will forever be imprinted on my brain. He stood up and he said, I'm so-and-so. I'm head of the Division of Alcoholism State Department of Hospitals. And I'm here to talk to you about alcoholism. He said, let me tell you. Uh, alcoholism is a devastating illness. It is ultimately a fatal illness. And he said, I can tell you three things about it. We treat alcoholics internally, we treat al alcoholics externally, and we treat alcoholics eternally. <coughs> but they never get well. That was backed up by the official diagnostic and statistical manual of the American Psychiatric Association. Alcoholism listed, listed over in the back of the book in the section called Organic Illnesses, Organic Brain Diseases. 
And essentially what they described was what was commonly known then as wet brain. And if you were in that state, you did die or quit living because you were unable to function. Well, that's what struck that terror in me. So I, I said, then and there, I said to her, and I'm speaking to the person I loved more than anybody in the world. She was not only my wife, my lover, but she was my friend. I said to her, you're an alcoholic. And I don't know what you're going to do about your illness. But I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to take these children and I am leaving. And I wasn't like Lois. I didn't mean I would be back in a week. Because what my brain told me was she was going to die. And I was not going to watch her die. And uh, I farmed the children out that evening. I was one of my avocations, as many of you know, is theater. And we were opening a show that night. And I had to be there. And I farmed the children out. And I said, I'll be back and take the children out. I, I came back after the show and the house was all lighted. And she was dressed. Her face was made up as it always had been before. Uh, convinced the people at the treatment center that she went to that she didn't sit around in an old chenille robe and drink all day. You know? But she was fixed up when I got back home and she said, uh, Evelyn has been here. Evelyn was a friend and colleague of mine uh, on whom about a year before I had done a one-man intervention on. And got her in treatment at FEA Bear Hospital in New Orleans. There was not, that's where she went. And uh, I did, uh, only way I got her there was is I made her an appointment at the detox center because they had to make the referral. And uh, I took her home the university, when she showed up drunk, uh, told her I was going to make the appointment and I'd be back to get her. 
and she better be sober when I got there. Well, she wasn't, but I took her anyway. I just picked her up and put her in the car. And I never will forget, we were driving down Park Boulevard, headed toward the detox center. And Evelyn looked at me and she said, stop this car. I'm not going. I said, yes, you are going too. And she said, no, I'm not. If you don't stop this car, I'm going to open the door and uh, jump out. And I said, you do, and I'm going to floorboard it and run over you. <laughs> well, that was my intervention. I got her there and got her in treatment and got her... She got sober. And my wife called Evelyn and talked to her, and Evelyn talked to her about the possibility of recovery. And by the time I got home, uh, Dell had even made arrangements uh, to get admitted to a treatment center uh, over in North Texas uh, the uh, following Monday. Uh, it was a treatment center where that her sister, who lived in Dallas, uh, uh, knew about because that was the treatment center that served Brandy Fairways. Remember old Brandy Fairways? And uh, she had gotten her a bed in that treatment center. And the next Monday she was in treatment. And when I put her on that plane, I really thought this is just a 30-day hiatus. You know, I had no no belief. Because I knew about real alcoholism. I knew nothing about the new look at alcoholism. Ways of looking at it as a primary illness that is treatable. Uh, the way literally put together by Bill W. and Dr. Bob and the Committee of 100, which offered hope for people before they got to the stage of having wet brains. But uh, I didn't know about that. That was not where the professions were with alcoholism at that time. Uh, medicine, psychiatry, social work, psychology, they just weren't there. They weren't there at all. They were still treating people with problems so they wouldn't drink anymore. Fortunately, that's changed. And I think at least over 50% now understand alcoholism as a primary illness and that if you catch it in its early stages, that people can live long and productive lives if they get into recovery. Uh well, that was the dark period, and uh, she went, and let me, I'm going to throw a couple of opinions in here. Uh, Y'all know I don't have any opinions. 
I don't think it was the treatment center or the treatment center staff that did a damn thing for her, except put her on a bus every night and send her to an AA meeting up in some little farming community in North Texas, and she sat for a whole hour with those old farmers who talked about how to get sober and stay sober. And they talked about it just straight from the big book. They were the magic. And they told her when she, she says that when she went to her last meeting, they said, hey gal, when you get back to that big city of Baton Rouge down there in Louisiana, you better get your butt to Allen. You better get your butt to AA. And you better go and you better go every day if you want to stay sober. And do you know what? She believed. And she did that. In the meantime, I had found Al-Anon. I attended my first Al-Anon meeting on a Monday night, April the 29th, 1982, in a little tea building uh, over at St. George School uh, over off Segan Lane. And uh, a week later, I went back to that same meeting. And then that next week, we went to Family Week over at that treatment center. And I had talked that staff into allowing me to bring my children. Uh, and then I got back home, and I went to yet another meeting. I went to a different one this time. I went to the Wednesday night meeting on Molly Lee and Sharp. And I ran into Clara Earl there. <laughs> and uh, after that, I started going every night. And for the first five years, I was in this program. I went to 13 meetings a week. The first five years. And uh, then after that, I dropped off to eight. <laughs> And uh, now I'm down to either five or six. But it's just all, I've done some hours in Al-Anon, folks. Not only in meetings, but over coffee, over meals, before and after meetings, and on the phone. And I have read the books. I am a great believer in that phrase. Study of these steps is essential to progress in the Al-Anon program. And I believe that today with all my heart. And I study it just as hard as I did 
when I first came in. I have read so many of those books so many times that the print ought to be faded off the pages. <laughs> and you know what? I never fail to find something new. Not that the words change, but what the words say to me change. Their relative importance in relation to each other changes over time. I love to pick up some of my older books and look at what I highlighted. And I think, why did I think that was so important? Here's what's important. You know, I finally quit highlighting because finally I had so many colors that it was distracting. I even had to buy a few new books because I couldn't read the books because they looked like I was reading through a rainbow. Uh, and... Uh, That step into that little tea building that night was the beginning of my high road to a new freedom. Uh, I wish those were my words. I just love that phrase. <laughs> the high road to a new freedom. But they aren't my words. Those are the last words in the preface to the second edition of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. But that was my introduction to the high road to a new freedom, which I continue on today. And you know what? Life just keeps getting better and better and better. Life gets easier to live. One of the greatest gifts to me in this program has been my realization of the absoluteness of the spiritual base of this recovery program. And that meant I had to do something about the God business. I couldn't just dismiss it. That was a hard struggle for me. I had been trained as a scientist, and I believed in evidence that that's how you knew whether things were or not. You gathered evidence, and you formulated hypotheses, and you tested the hypothesis. And you measured the results. And you either, well, you never proved anything. But you disapproved.
a lot of stuff. Okay. But that method wouldn't work in recovery. So I had to do something. And uh, a lady I could have really smacked did me a great favor one day when she looked at me in a meeting early, early on and said, I, I was very distressed. I went in and I was pouring out my heart about some distress. And she looked across the room at me and she said, Honey, all you got to do is have a little law of faith in God. I wanted to hit her. <laughs> I thought, how do you have a lot of faith in something you don't even believe in? And I walked out of the room. And Al followed me out. And he called me and he said, Grady, I don't agree with that lady. I have a lot of faith in God. You just got to have some faith in some power greater than yourself. And I don't care what you call it. And I said, well, how do you get it? How am I going to get something I don't have? And so he suggested that I talk to people who claim to believe in God and uh, listen to them. Listen to what they had to say. So I did that. I did that like I did everything else in those days. I literally buttonholed people and I interviewed them. And I'd ask them, do you believe in God? Well, tell me about this God you believe in. And tell me how come you believe in God, and so on and so forth. And I gathered quite a bit of material in about weeks. And Al asked me how I was coming along on my research. And I told him, I said, Al, I found out two things. People who say they believe in God do two things pretty universally. They pray and they meditate. And uh, I said, you know, I'm all right with the meditation business. I took the Far Eastern meditation thing. But I have a lot of trouble with the spraying business. I don't know how. Because I remembered my days in the Southern Baptist Church. And I knew that wasn't prayer for me. And I'm not disparaging it being prayer for other people. I knew that was not prayer for me. And he said, uh, well, he said, that's no problem. If you don't know how to pray, he said, library is full of books of prayers. You go and find you some. And I did. I locked, went over to the LSU library and spent a whole afternoon, and I read books of prayers. And I also read, got my hands on the uh, AA Big Book that day. In the library, they had it there, several copies. Uh, they keep getting stolen, I understand. <laughs> uh, and uh, I didn't steal one. Uh, and uh, I first picked four prayers, and one of them was the third step prayer from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous which is still one of my anchor prayers. Uh, and I picked three others. 
I've added several since then, including Shema, which I told you about uh, at the start of this. And it's easy for me to memorize things. And by evening, I had those prayers memorized. And I started saying them. And I said, um, every time I thought about it, I would say those prayers. And at first, they were just words. And then, on June 10th, which was my wife's birthday, by the way, June 10th, 1982, I was in my little uh, white Corvair, puttering down the expressway toward LSU and I reached that place where I-10 12 merge and I was saying my prayers and I was saying was saying the third step prayer and I realized something was different something was very different that the words weren't just filling up the car they were being heard. And I got to my office and I called my sponsor and he wasn't there and Libby, his wife, whom I had gotten to know and love, I said, Libby, I've got to tell you something. I told her the story. And she said, Lady, I think you've reached God. And uh, that was the beginning of another chapter of an odyssey of, of waking up one day believing in God and waking up the next and not believing. And that went on for a long, long, long time. I finally got comfortable with that, that some days I'm just not going to believe. Uh, but I had learned something from you folks that if something has worked for you before, keep doing it. And if something doesn't work, don't do it. <laughs> but that had worked before. And it worked for me. If I would get back to praying, I would again wake up believing. And then I began to put two and two together. That there was something very different about the days I believed and the days I didn't believe. The days I believed were better than the days I didn't believe. I am overjoyed to tell you that it has been several years now since I have waked up and not believed. So you know what? I'm going to keep on praying because it's better this way. Uh, I'm going to wind up in about two minutes but I want to want to say a couple of other things. 
the anchors of my program. One I've mentioned is study of these steps. But studying them isn't enough. You got to do them. You got to live them. How do you live them? You do what they say. It's as simple as that. Which leads to my second major point, and that is I really believe in keeping it simple. The easiest way for me to get crazy is to get fancy with this program. So I just do the steps. I do what they say. I do some other things. I go to meetings, and I talk to other people in recovery. And I talk a lot to other people in recovery. And I am often much more interested in talking with people in recovery who have a different point of view about some of this stuff than I do. Say something that I don't agree with, and you're going to have a conversation with me. <laughs> and I am, I'm not going to tell you what I believe. I'm going to ask you about what you said. And how come you believe that? And uh, that's the way I do it. I also believe it is absolutely true that I have only a daily reprieve from the illness. And I have exactly the same illness that any addict has. That I have only a daily reprieve dependent on my spiritual condition. And that spiritual condition is dependent on the maintenance of my relationship with a higher power. I'm also a great believer in sponsorship. I don't think sponsors are miracle workers. I think sponsors are yeomen. I think sponsors are caring people. That all they have to offer is their experience, their strength. And And I also believe in taking what you can use and leaving the rest. Even if it's your sponsor who says it. Uh, I think too many people make this program too hard. It was never meant to be hard. It was just meant to be done. Uh, It's going to come as a great surprise to some of you who've heard me rant and rave about my struggles with God over the years. Late last year, 
I affiliated with a religious community. And that is another step in my spiritual maturation. Uh, if I invited you, many of you, to come, you might wander out thinking, that's a religious community? I'll even tell you what it is. It's the Unitarian Universalist Association. Uh, there, I have found people who, like me, relish in the search for God. And uh, they don't tell me what I've got to believe. And they don't tell me that what I believe is wrong. And they will share with me generously about their struggles and their victories and their discovery of their relationship with their God. Uh, and I'll wind up by telling you a funny Unitarian joke. <laughs> Unitarians don't make very good congregational singers. Do you know why? Because they're always reading the phrase ahead to see if they agree with the words or not. <laughs> uh, thanks for this privilege. Uh, I hope that you have felt some of the joy of my recovery. And I hope that you discover for you and for yourself nothing but joy in recovery. Because I think that's what this program is about. Being happy, joyous, and free. And that we are the chosen people. Because we are on the high road to freedom. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.